Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan in a denim shirt. Tonight on Fast, we're watching shares of Tesla, the company kicking off its annual meeting in less than 30 minutes from now. What you can expect when Elon Musk takes the stage. Plus, a big day for Alibaba, the Chinese tech giant soaring more than 8% for its best session in nearly six months. Half of our traders tonight own this name. How they're playing this Baba bounce and later a big bank gut check. One of our traders getting a little nervous heading into earnings next week. He or she will tell us why. But we start off with a sea of green on Wall Street. The S&P Dow and Nasdaq all posting big gains with all three indices notching their highest closes of the month. Ten of the 11 sectors were up today, led by consumer stocks, materials, health care. And the rally comes even as rates tick higher as well. The 10-year Treasury yield at its highest level since mid-June. So how do you make sense of this market action, Guy? Will you indulge me uh, for just a minute, Mel? All right. Oh, you know, I try to have a little enthusiasm. You know, Dan's denim is fitting for okay. today because when I was a wee lad in the 90s, uh, my friend said we need to go to this establishment on Bleecker Street. The name of it was the Peculiar Pub. And the only thing I found peculiar about it was the way they spelled it. So with 10-year yields trading at 158 today, if you had told me, gee, Swiss, 10 years would be 158. Where's the S&P? I would have said we're well short of this 4,200 level. And instead, here we are rallying. Makes no sense to me. Maybe it was Charlie Munger's comments. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, some of these Chinese stocks got off the mat. Uh, the, the tension in Washington seems to have abated. But yields going higher to me is a warning sign. The market just didn't seem to choose to acknowledge it today. Yeah, certainly didn't impact uh, tech stocks, Dan Nathan. Which, which would have been a surprise if we had said yesterday what the scenario was today. Yeah, you know, Mel, most of the day, though, there was, there was many leaders, tech leaders or past leaders that were underperforming. And so, you know, you saw Facebook close on the lows. I know that is a stock-specific story, but I think there's a potential for that to drag a lot of these other names. We talked about it on the show um, a couple nights ago. I mean, we're still seeing underperformance by some of the major names, Amazon and Apple, relative to the major um, indices. So to me, I think those major tech stocks are really kind of teetering a little bit. If you have have a move in the in the 10-year yield from 157 where it is to the highs at 177 in late March. Um, I don't think that the, the major, uh, major uh, tech stocks participate and they could drag things down. You also have a dollar that is about to break out or appears it's about to break out. And you have oil, while it's come in a little bit, is really kind of staying put. So all of those things together, it doesn't make up great setup to me for stocks right here. We are only a couple percent from the all-time highs, and it wouldn't take much to get through that. I'm just not seeing a runaway breakout from here. I mean, how do you how do you make sense of today's market action, Karen? Because it seems like a lot of things weren't going in the market's favor today, except for maybe kicking the can down the road to December on, on the debt limit. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing, though, kicking the can down the road. I think, you know, when we saw the turnaround yesterday with the market being down so much and then rallying that, you know, we got a sense of, wow, this really was weighing on the market as much as we thought it was sort of maybe just, you know, scare tactics that it was weighing on the market because it did turn around and that continued that sort of sugar high. It's funny that the idea of, oh, thank God, that's for another day, which is only like, what, seven weeks away? I don't know. Less, maybe. Um that's sort of how myopic this market is to the idea that, all right, well, something that happens in December is not really relevant to us now. 
I actually think it should be, but it isn't. doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't seem to be. I think also, though, what might be pushing the market is the idea that maybe, maybe things are getting a tiny bit better in terms of uh, the pileup at the ports, and maybe that's just loosening a little bit. I'm not sure. But if that's the case, it would make sense that the economy would be back on track a little bit more and that rates would rise. And those rates rising to me isn't necessarily a death knell for stocks. So that that narrative makes sense to me, except for the part about, oh, well, it's only, you know, we'll worry about it in December. Yeah, that, begin- that will I'm- be scary again in December. That will really be a, a, you know, a roadblock, so to speak. I mean, if, if you're thinking that there's going to be seasonal strength into, into the end of the year, but then, oh, by the way, we're de- going to deal with this debt limit thing once again. And if this was, in fact, a factor in the markets in the past few days, it's going to be another it's not going to be another weight on the markets in December, Tim. Well, look, I, I think a lot of the seasonal elements of September, October are behind us. I'm not telling you we we didn't have a big crash back in 87 and that October still can't rear its ugly head and. Uh, but I, I do think that there's an element of, look, uh, markets technically have, have corrected some of that noise that the Nasdaq is up four and a half percent off those intraday lows on on Tuesday. And, and so you've got you know, you've got a very strong argument that at least uh, I think that, that the market, as Guy pointed out, can wake up on a particular side of the bed and decide whether higher rates are good or bad. Um, I, I think higher rates are fine. Uh, I think rates up to two percent are going to be fine. I think one hundred dollar oil will be fine. And in fact, I think signs of cyclicality and structural dynamics in the oil market and the commodities markets, et cetera. So uh, I guess I'm of the view that uh, I think the debt ceiling was an issue, uh, but I don't think it was that significant of an issue. I think just oversold and, and conditions and pessimism have, have, have worn out for, for now. Uh, and I think that's Let's not overthink it, because, again, at one point, debt folks were telling you that the debt ceiling was the reason that the rates were running higher two weeks ago. Um, You'd think that, if anything, rates would have gone down a little bit if we got that debt ceiling behind us. And, in fact, we set a new high on the tenure. Yeah. Um, I feel like we should mark this state down, Guy, in terms of Tim's prognostication that $100 oil is not going to be a problem. I mean, I think we'll... Wow, I'm out there. Right? I mean, don't you you think so? I mean, we've always said, or people have always said that the higher oil is a tax on the consumer. And so $100 oil is a long ways from now. We've already had heating oil. Heating oil is one of the best performing commodities, and we're only entering the cold season. Mm -hmm. You you know, natural gas is also up more than a double for the past year, Guy. I mean, all this adds up. I understand what Tim is saying. And listen, quite frankly, I hope he's right in that prognostication, because maybe that'll mean the economy is doing better. And, and, you know, to a certain extent, Maybe the Fed will have this entire thing right. We'll see. I, I would somewhat take the other side. I think if we get to 100, the market's not going to particularly like that. And I think we'll get there in short order. So the speed with which we get there will be problematic. And I'm with Tim on this one. You know, that the fact that rates were going higher on the concern of this debt ceiling, when that concern went away or was abated for a couple months, yields theoretically should have gone down. They didn't. So a lot of things to be concerned about. Uh, the things that are still working... If you want to get a little stock specific, you see clearly J.P. Morgan's been watching Fast Money because they upgraded Schlumberger today. I think they put a $37 price target. OIH, all services are working. You know, Big Cap Pharma seems to be getting off the mat again. And, you know, I would submit, you know, banks look interesting. I know we're going to talk about that later. Real quick, FCX had one of the best days it's had in quite some time, I think up 8% on an upgrade. So, look, the, the things we've talked about seemingly are still working, but there are certain concerns out there that I still have. 
When do we think, and I'll go back to Tim on this because you're, you know, you're sort of playing in the FCX arena. When do we think that things might stop working for this kind of trade? And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a macro factor because when you're talking about stocks that have had these massive runs, it could be anything. Sorry, when, when will the S&P or, or no, are we no, talking sorry, about the FCX? No, no, sorry, the materials trades, so uh, the, the oil trade. So, so yeah, look, I, I, I think it, energy, we've broken a 14-year downtrend in oil. Um, I think it's going to be, it's a lot easier for it to get to 100 than it, than it is to get to 50. So I, I think you have a case here where I've, I've pointed out where a company like Freeport has not reinvested. Uh, there's going to be shortages in copper. There's still a, a booming housing market. Uh, there's an infrastructure bill. So uh, and I and I, you know, for all the dollar strength and I did my trade school on the dollar, uh, the, the dollar hasn't really knocked these guys down. And, and I think that tells you where demand and structural issues uh, are, are at work. And I've also said these companies are run better. Free, uh, free cash flow machine at FCX. So no, I, I think these trades can continue unless we, unless the Fed oversteps their bounds and is and stomps on this thing. Uh, and right now, in, you know, unless it's 2018 again, um, they're scared to do that. Dan. Yeah, I think that as we think about earnings season, Mel, we've already had a few earnings over the last few weeks. We saw Nike, we saw FedEx. There were some disappointments. Even Facebook had a soft um, guide down about some of their ad revenues. I'd say the combination of higher rates, of a higher dollar, and higher energy costs is a nightmare for corporate earnings. When you think about it, and you think about a lot of our multinationals, right, who are our, comp- our, our country opened up before much of the world, right? So you have the stronger dollar now, and this next leg of growth is going to be expected to be outside of the U.S. I just think that's a real problem here. So I would expect to see really squishy Q4 guidance, not a lot of visibility beyond that, and maybe some peak margins here. So that's when you have to start thinking about valuations as far as the stock market's concerned. And it wasn't until we sold off about 5% over the last few weeks where I started hearing analysts and strategists talking about valuations. We always know that is in hindsight. And so we might have gotten a little bit of a precursor of what's going to go on for the next couple months as it relates to the valuations on this market and some very, very highly valued sectors and individual names. All right. For more on how to navigate the market's recent volatility, let's bring in RBC's Lori Calvacina. Lori, great to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. You recommend a sort of barbell approach to this whole thing. You're not going to say all in on value or, or all in on growth. You're saying a little bit of both. That's right. I mean, we've looked at the value trade, we've looked at the growth trade, and we also look at it through the lens of cyclicals versus secular. And we feel like there is room still for the value trade to do quite well from a valuation perspective. We need a lot of things to go right. We need COVID cases to improve, which frankly has been happening. We're seeing that rate of change come down. Um, and we're finally seeing you know, sort of the peak in the COVID cases a lot of people had expected. Um, but we also think that Fed rate hikes are pretty toxic for the value trade, are historically pretty toxic for cyclicals. So we think we're going to nice, you know, sort of outperformance in the intermediate term in the value trade kind of into the middle of next year. But unfortunately, whenever the Fed hikes rates, small caps usually peak versus large value peaks versus growth and cyclicals peak uh, versus secular. Um, And so we don't think you want to get too comfortable. We think you just want to stay in the best of both worlds, to be honest. Lori, it's Tim. So in your barbell, uh, I know energy fits in there and you have banks in there and they may sit on the same side of the barbell. Um, Which sector do you think in the near term has more oomph to it? They both run. 
Yeah, look, I would say from a valuation perspective, financials and energy, they both look pretty similar. They both still look pretty undervalued to us. And we've liked energy in part because the earnings revision trends have been so unbelievably resilient. It's one of the best sectors in terms of the rate of revisions to the upside. Now, financials is the one I'm watching. They report early. And what's interesting about financials is that the revisions have weakened a little bit. They're not bad. They've weakened a little bit from their peak. But historically, when you get an upward move in the 10-year Treasury yield, you get upward revisions in financials because of the influence on bank stocks. So I think that's really one thing to watch early on in this reporting season if we actually see some momentum come back to financials earnings revisions. Hey, Larry, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on. Um, it, financials is a sector I follow a lot closely. So within financials, are you differentiating between like sort of an old line JP Morgan and, uh, you know, a, a square or a something more more fintechy? Well, the way we do the work is on the gig sectors, and I would tell you that we're seeing the, the attractive valuations and that interest rate sensitivity and the traditional banks. Um, sort of the fintech part of the market, you know, we think that you really just don't have the same kind of valuation appeal that's really sitting more in the tech sector, to be honest. Um, so we look for the kind of boring old economy type banks. Lori, you know, we've been hearing so much about the, the surge in energy prices, and I'm wondering at what point does this you know, it become a headwind for either corporations or the consumer? I think it's a great question, Melissa. I think we've got to watch in this next reporting season what we see in terms of comments on energy prices. I do think a lot of companies hedge, so I don't think that that's necessarily as big of an issue as it was, say, five, ten years ago. I think the ultimate impact probably is more on consumers. Um, and we did not see sort of late in the last reporting season. A lot of those consumer companies reported kind of mid to late August. We didn't really see a lot of complaints about energy prices back then. That doesn't mean we won't get it this time around. But I do think that consumers do still have ample cash cushions so they can still absorb some of these hits. But you're right. I mean, it's clearly something we've got to watch in here. Lori, great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Lori Calvacina. Guy, you like that barbell approach? A little bit of uh, each end, so to speak? Couple I like what she's putting down. Good for her. She does, Again, she does great work, and I'm with her. I mean, my biggest concern continues to be margins, right? Are, are, these, are, are these companies, corporations, retailers, are they able to pass on what are going to be higher costs uh, to their end users? I'm not certain that's the case. So if margins comes in, we start after questioning valuations. That's been my concern for a while. And we'll see it manifest itself in this earnings period we're about to in, embark upon. Isn't that sort of a push-pull, Karen? Because, if, I mean, certainly if, if companies can't pass that cost on to the consumer, then the margins come in, which is bad for the stock market. But at the same time, if they do push it on to the consumer, the consumer faces inflationary pressures. It's sort of, you know, it hurts one, one area and eventually it translates back to stocks, no? Yeah, that's a very good point. But I would also add, though, that the consumer who is, to the extent the consumer is working, they're probably earning more. So that that's another part of the inflation chain, right? Hourly wages going up. So I don't know, we just maybe get in this spiral of up, up and just passing the buck along. So uh, I'm not sure which weighs the most. But if you have an excellent brand, you're far more likely to be able to pass on that, that whatever cost pressures you may see, even labor, to the consumer. Yep. 
Coming up, what is going on with gold? The two charts that show the metal might be losing its luster. More on that next. Plus, Baba going bonkers. Shares of the Chinese e-commerce giant surging. More than 8% today will break down the move. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site. Back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following a developing story out of Capitol Hill, where in just a few hours, lawmakers are expected to hold a key vote to avert a potentially disastrous debt debacle. At least for now, CNBC's senior congressional correspondent Elon Moy joins us now with more. Elon. Well, Melissa, senators are now debating the debt limit deal on the floor. That'll go on for a couple of hours. And then the final vote is now scheduled for tonight. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had promised Democrats that his party wouldn't block this vote from happening. But some GOP senators were uncomfortable with this process. Ted Cruz and Rand Paul are forcing the chamber to clear a procedural hurdle that requires 60 votes to pass. In this case, all 50 Democrats plus 10 Republicans, putting their own party in a tough spot. Even President Biden hedged his bets as he traveled to Chicago today ahead of this vote, telling reporters, we've got to see if the deal is done. I'm not sure of that yet. Still, the bill is eventually expected to pass this evening. After that, it needs to get a vote in the House before it can head to the president's desk for his signature. Remember, this deal would raise the debt limit by $480 billion. Treasury projects that's enough to last to about December the 3rd. Not so coincidentally, Melissa, that is the same day that the government funding runs out. So prepare for the sequel to the D.C. drama in just a couple of weeks. Back over to you. We need a countdown clock, Elon. Thank you, Elon Moy. As some of you might remember, the last time we had a debt ceiling crisis, there was a huge rush to safety in the form of gold buying. The commodity soared 60 percent from its 2010 lows to its famous September 2011 highs. But it is a totally different ballgame this time around. Not only is gold down 15 percent from its 2020 highs, it is down more than 2 percent over the past month. So similar crisis, totally different price action. Does this necessarily mean that gold is losing its luster as a store of value? Dan? Yeah, it's lost it, Mel. It's gone. It's over. I mean, when you think about it, the last time we had this crisis uh, about a decade ago, I mean, gold was trading about the same spot. And we have a chart here just kind of showing that. We were just talking about um, a barbell approach. Look at 10 years on uh, what's happened in gold. So we did have this little bit of run up. There has been some fears of inflation. We did see, um, you know, the, the, you know, a, a kind of flight to quality or safety or something like that when we had the pandemic. But really what's happened here is every incremental dollar that wants to go into store value, I perceive, is going into Bitcoin. And when you think about the potential to narrow that gap between the gold holdings uh, globally, which are north of 10 trillion, and what, uh, you know, Bitcoin's uh, market cap, it's about a trillion. Now, the last point I'll just make is we know that we're not going to trip the debt ceiling and, and we're not going to get downgraded and all that sort of stuff. It's a lot of drama. But when you look at that gold chart over the last 10 years and you look at what's happened to the sovereign balance sheet here, um, you know, we've gone from about two and a half trillion to eight and a half trillion and gold stood still. There is no case to own gold here. I'm sorry, all you gold bugs. And I know I'm just kind of ticking off Guy Adami here, but it's over. It's done. For somebody so salty, Dan, it's amazing that you have such faith in Washington to actually get this done when the can is, in fact, kicked down this, I'm not even going to say road, it's like a small pathway. Um, Karen, do you buy the argument that perhaps Bitcoin is, is the beneficiary? I mean, people have made that case about Bitcoin being a store of value for so long. The trillion dollars out of gold, trillion dollars into big, that's fairly convincing. It's interesting. 
You're saying the one trillion of Bitcoin versus the 10 trillion of gold? No, the, that came out of gold outflow and in, into Bitcoin. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I believe that's happening. I mean, it, also, you would think with the commodity move that's been going on, I thought that was one of the underpinnings of a, the gold bull case, wasn't it? I thought inflation, commodities and, you know, that would be part of it as well. So I, I've never quite understood gold. Um, and I do think that because Bitcoin is becoming sort of a valid asset class that people need to be invested in, some of that coming out of gold, that makes sense to me. I don't know if this is it. That's the move. I'm not sure. But um, I, I agree. I don't get gold. I don't get why. What, it, what has it done for you? I don't get it. <laughs> well, it's it's done down 8 percent over the past year for you, basically, <laughs> Guy Adami. So I'll go to you as the, the person who dabbled in gold once upon a time of blue moon ago. Yeah. It was a peculiar pub days, and we got to bookmark uh, one sh- part of the show. We'll bookmark Denim Dan's call that it's over, and, and I hope he just rang the bell for a myriad of reasons, not least of which we'll get to see him in that denim shirt for years to come. But look, it's hard for me to make a compelling case for gold here, without question. Obviously, not. crypto, which is now either side of two trillion dollars, is stalled a lot of that. I mean, if gold just got half of that money, obviously it'd be ten percent higher than we are. You can do that math, as can I. Um, I will go back and say, look, central banks have been buying gold in record amounts. doesn't seem to affect the price at all. And I still will bookmark the day that Palantir, albeit a small amount, bought $50.3 million worth of not the gold ETF, but actual gold bars. So there are other people that do think like I do. But again, price is truth, as I say. And the truth right now is gold does not want to go higher. All right. We want to get to an after hours alert in the biotech space. Let's get to Bertha Coombs for that. Bertha. Melissa, shares of uh, cancer research company Allogene Therapeutics plunging 40% after hours, even getting briefly halted in extended trade after the FDA put a clinical hold on trials of the company's cancer drugs. Allergene says that there was a single report of a chromosomal abnormality in a stage four lymphoma patient that was taking part in one of the trials. They expect to have an update after they consult with the FDA in the coming weeks. But as you can see, the stock taking a big hit. And Melissa, this stock was already down about 40% on a 12-month basis. Back wow. to you. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The China trade is back. Alibaba surging thanks to a big bet from legendary investor Charlie Munger. We've got the details next. Plus, don't be a square, but Jeffries say buy it. Why analysts say this payment stock is a must own. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Alibaba topping the tape today and soaring more than 8% thanks to a big bet by Charlie Munger. The Daily Journal, which counts Warren Buffett's business buddy as chairman, nearly doubled its stake in Baba as the, recent, as the stock fell in recent months. And check out the rest of China Tech. The KWeb ETF rallying today, surging more than 7%. Tim, do you buy this bounce here? Well, Charlie, you know, understand, again, the source. Charlie Munger's always been a major China bull. In fact, I think he's out there with a statement, something along the lines of the best companies in the world are in China. Um, and, and, and look, doubling the stake from where we're looking at regulatory filings from the first quarter, the end of the third quarter, to a total of 45 minutes, that's a lot of stock. 
But, you know, that's not necessarily a lot of stock relative to the market cap of the company. It's, it's you know, it's Charlie Munger. And, and I think this is really the, the impact here. I think some of this uh, extra, call it, you know, energy and, and the nitrous behind some of these China moves today has something to do with Biden and she mm-hmm. Planning a summit, and I think there is some sense that maybe uh, at least, although the U.S. and China are going to have some very fundamental issues, uh, they will be on the opposite sides of. There may be um, at least a thawing of of some of the relationship, at least a summit that will appear different than anything we've seen under the last administration. So I think that has something to do with it. Up to 175, Bob is still in a downtrend. Um, I do think that the sense that there will be wholesale redistribution of assets in China is wrong. Um, but I don't think this changes overnight. I think an open line of communication is always optimistic. There's always hope that things could thaw between them. But a lot of the pain extracted on the Chinese tech sector was solely because of Beijing and not necessarily something that the U.S. did to Beijing. And so I'm wondering, yep. Karen, in your yep. view, if a lot of that sort of nitrous, as Tim had put it, um, mm-hmm. is warranted, uh, if we should be sort of elated that things are getting better for the tech sector. Mm-hmm. Well, I also thought maybe, did you see that deal? It was a buyout deal of a, one of the Chinese uh, property owners who owns uh, an Evergrande piece. There was a buyout there, so that stock mm-hmm. gigantic deal. But I'm wondering if that also was some of the sort of excitement in the market. I don't know. Um, I just, I don't have a position, Alibaba. I lost as much as I could lose. I have this, you know, uh, it's not my slogan, but I think of it often, whoever said it. Uh, you don't need to make it back where you lost it. So it's nice for Baba Holders that it was up so much today, but that one is going I'm to, not, I'm not on that ride right now. Yeah. Dan, what, what did you make of this bounce? Well, it's interesting. You know, before the Chinese really started to lean into their own companies a little bit, we were worried about delisting and and some of the actions Mm -hmm. that some of our exchanges were taking here. So, I, I, you know, again, I think we've been talking about this the whole way down. It's been really hard. And and to Tim's point, I mean, some of the most innovative companies with a very captive audience for all intents and purposes and a very large growing middle class in China with, where a lot of foreigners don't have access to it, it seems perfect except for the fact that these companies that are listed here, when they're done getting banged around by their own government, it seems like they got around coming from ours. And, you know, again, Tim made the point. Alibaba, if it rallied another 15% or 20%, it's still in a downtrend. It's down that much in such a short period of time. So to me, I think something fundamental has to change before you want to kind of dip your toe in. Yeah, I mean, Munger and Buffett, they are long, long-term investors yeah. guy also. So <laughs> they could be increasing the stake, acquiring a huge you know, slab of Alibaba shares at the same time. They're not looking necessarily for a payoff for decades, potentially. And I don't know if our audience has <laughs> well, that, that sort of time frame. <laughs> uh, nor do I, clearly. I mean, I'm getting up there. Listen, I, I'll say this. Tim makes the exact right point. I mean, for you technicians out there, uh, it could trade up to 175 and still be in basically a year-ish downtrend uh, where we made a series of lower lows and lower highs. I thought back on August 13th when the stock, if you recall, traded down to 153 and actually rallied close higher on the day on big volume. I thought that was it. And for about three or four trading days, we were looking like geniuses. Well, that, that sort of fell by the wayside. And my sense is the same thing's going to happen here. We'll have another conversation on a close above 180. 
coming up. Tesla's annual meeting kicking off just now. Uh, CEO Elon Musk expected to take the stage. We'll bring you any of the big headlines as they come in, plus a must-own stock. That's what analysts are calling one name in the payment space. We're charging into that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Square jumping today after Jeffries called the stock a must-own for the long term. It's a, our call of the day. Analysts upgrading the name to a buy, raising the price target to $300. It's more than 20% higher than today's close. So is this a name you charge forward on? Forgive all the puns. They're not mine. Uh, Dan, what do you say? <laughs> Well, I, I think it is a must-own long-term, but your question, Mel, is do you have to buy it right here at $250? You know, it's up in line basically with the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ on the year, up about 15%. It's been very volatile. It's traded in a very large range, 290 down to 151, um, you know, over the last year. And I'll just say this, is that, yeah, $150 hey, it's billion dollar market yeah, $115 billion market cap company where earnings growth is expected just to be up, you know, I don't know, 20, 25%. Revenues grew last year. They accelerated so much behavior, 100%. Again, they're only supposed to grow 20%. So it's kind of kind of a valuation issue here for a company that has 26% gross margins on the out year. This is not one of those recurring revenue names with 80% gross <laughs> margins. So to me, I think it is a must own long term. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure you have to buy it right here. Guy, are you off the phone? Just kidding. <laughs> oh, I don't know what's going on. There's a ghost in the machine. Oh, really? I mean, the Twitter trolls are just killing me. Maybe they're knocking me out of the box. Listen, it's a valuation thing, right? I, I, yeah. We've liked the name for a while, but you have this, for you armchair technicians of Carter Braxtonworth obviously being in the Parthenon, you have a bit of a double top here. So you need to break it out on the upside. I'd rather wait till earnings, which I think come in the beginning of November. I think Dan makes a really good point here. I mean, there's a lot of ways ways to play the payment space, Karen. I mean, you can you can go PayPal, for instance, which looks like uh, you know it's less than half of the valuation of Square at this point. Yeah, it's really Square's. I mean, they've done extraordinary things, but to me, it's all about valuation, which is to Dan's point also. You know, they want to be your bank, they want to be your broker, they want to be your small business lender, they want you to you know be your cash app to send money to people. All of that. And yet they have a multiple that doesn't doesn't reflect any of those kind of businesses. I love the payment space, but I don't love the valuation here. All right. Speaking of Square, Jim Cramer calling it a neobank fave in one of today's CNBC Investing Club newsletters. He also named three other stocks in that space as top picks. For those names, sign up at CNBC.com backslash investing club or just point your phone to the QR code on the side of the screen. It will take you right there. Coming up, we are watching shares of Tesla as the company's annual meeting gets underway. We're breaking down the trade on the EV stock straight ahead. But first, a message from our own Bertha Coombs as CNBC celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month. My Latino heritage is really wrapped up with being a Cuban immigrant. We moved to the U.S. when I was four. My dad felt that we just couldn't make a life in Castro's Cuba, and he came here for greater opportunity. And that's something that has just been ingrained in me, that you need to take risks, you need to be willing to explore the unknown to really get that payoff in your life and your career. Welcome back to Fast Money. Happening now, Tesla kicking off its annual meeting from a gigafactory in Austin. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with more on what we can expect. Phil. 
Melissa, the meeting started on time, and that's, it, sometimes these meetings don't always start on time, but they did start on time. But they're going through all of the, the business that you usually see at annual meetings, voting on shareholder proposals. We have not heard yet from Elon Musk. When we do hear from Elon Musk, and I think that's probably going to be another 10 or 15 minutes, three things that shareholders are going to be looking for him to at least touch upon as he talks about where the company is and where the company is headed. First of all, are the new gigafactories ready? Remember, this meeting is being held at the uh, Tesla Gigafactory that is about to be opened up just outside of Austin, Texas. There's also one that's going to be opening up within the next month or two outside of Berlin, Germany. What's the supply chain outlook? They've talked about that a couple of times over the last few months about the challenges that they've seen there. And finally, is the Cybertruck delivery plan still in place or will it be pushed back even further? Remember, it's already been pushed a little bit. We'll see what he has to say about that. Their full year delivery consensus right now stands at 883000 vehicles. They have already exceeded the number of vehicles they delivered last year, which was a half million vehicles. They uh, so far have delivered, I think, 627,000 vehicles. So they've got a shot at getting close to 900,000, though I haven't seen too many analysts who are expecting them to hit 900,000. And as you take a look at shares of Tesla year to date, Really, it's been a nice move over the last, I'd say, three to four months. That's where you've seen the stock once again accelerating, getting close to $800 a share. And remember, this meeting here, it doesn't always deliver news, Melissa, but sometimes Elon Musk, when he gives his outlook, he says a few things that it does get attention. And so we'll be watching and we'll let you know if he has anything to say. Again, they're going through the shareholder proposals. We'll probably hear from Elon Musk, I'd say, in about 10 to 15 minutes. All right. We look forward to it, Phil. Thank you, Phil LeBeau. For more on Tesla's annual meeting, let's bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster, partner at Loop. Gene, good to have you with us. Um, what's your number one question going into this meeting? And do you think that you'll get an answer? Uh, I think it will be answered. My number one question is, when is Cybertruck coming out? As a quick refresher, pickup trucks account for 20% of U.S. sales. I don't know what it is globally. This is a big market. It has been delayed. That's my number one question. And if I can uh, take a little bit more here. And my number two uh, question is around Model 2. This is their uh, $25,000 car that they've, they've teased at coming out. It is tough to build a car, to purchase a new car for $25,000, and they're going to try to do that. And I think when you put those two together, get a better sense of what's going on with Cybertruck and Model 2 in combination with their current lineup, which obviously is growing 100% faster than the rest of auto, you can start to build a case where this uh, company can deliver on its goal. They started out the the analyst day or the uh, shareholder meeting mm-hmm. by kind of reiterating their goal of, uh, of 20 million vehicles. And so you can see how you can get there. How do you view Tesla's goals, Gene? Um, and, and those two data points when it comes to uh, the Cybertruck as well as the, the lower cost car, um, in light of GM's bold uh, target raises from yesterday and also Ford's big plan, particularly for the F-150, it seems that its competitors are really um, going gung-ho on EVs. And this has got to, I would imagine, even at the margins, impact how you view Tesla and its market share, you know, by 2030, let's say. Getting to the core question around sustainability of this massive growth and this potential that they can grow at 50% compound for the next 10 years, which they talk about. But I just want to quickly put GM's comments into perspective. They've had a two-day, as, as you mentioned, analyst day. They talked about doing uh, about $90 billion in EV revenue at the end of the decade. So nine years from now, $90 billion. 
Uh, Tesla, by my math, should be around 700 billion in uh, EV revenue at that point. Uh, in other words, is that uh, if you take uh, uh, GM's guidance and say that they're going to achieve that guidance, their electric business will be 15% of the size of what Tesla says their electric business can be. They're all estimates, so the proof is in the pudding. But uh, I would just say that uh, as uh, a company that has been around for a long time, General Motors, understand their excitement around being a platform company, EV, robo-taxis, that is all good to hear. But the substance of the targets fall well short. And uh, the bottom line is that they're going to be losing market share in the new EV world. Gene, for a long time, we had to sort of sit and watch to see if Elon Musk was going to say, tweet, do something that could um, have a detrimental impact on the stock. It seems as though we're well past that. As a matter of fact, I would submit it looks like he's really grown into the job of CEO. Is that an observation you share? And quite frankly, if it is, you know, I think this stock is poised to take out the all-time highs we made at that $900 level or so. I, I mean, I'm always reluctant to try to predict what Elon's going to do, but you are accurate. They've, he's been um, more CEO-like. Uh, I think he's still kind of maintained his, his personality, too. I do question how long he wants to do this job. I suspect it's probably for five more years and uh, maybe two more years as CEO, three more years, and then probably go to a chairman role. I think space and Mars is is more compelling to him. Uh, but uh, I want to just quickly uh, get to the, the point about a breakout here is that it's hard to predict a breakout when you've had the kind of performance that Tesla stock has had. But when you put the pieces together around their current business, how they're gaining share, around what the future products are, you can build a case that this can be a much bigger company. Gene, great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster of Loop. We've talked about this before in terms of really competing. And when you're talking about one of the best-selling vehicles in the United States and around the world, the F Ford F-150, Tim, it would seem that getting a Cybertruck that is really competitive would be key to keeping its market share in that particular segment. And then getting that Model 2 car out is going to be key to it maintaining its more than 60% market share as well. You would think so. But but again, you know, the 241,000, the deliveries have been so extraordinary and, and the ramping, you, you have to give credit. And so to the extent that, that I, you know, again, the EV opportunity, everybody understands that. And it really is right now, I think, a scaling issue, which, um, you know, Tesla has to has to still get further down the road, even though uh, major, major victories. Uh, by the way, you have to point out also that the stock has been a bedrock of stability during a volatile market. I mean, it's almost extraordinary when you when you look at, at just how unvolatile or, or 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 really kind of benign the price movements have been in Tesla or in the month of September when the rest of the market has been having a very difficult time. Look, I don't change my tune on the multiple and not a buyer of Tesla at these levels. And even if you put a five dollar EPS on 2022, which I think is is you know, not aggressive, but it shows, you know, a lot more profitability than they had yesterday. It's still 155 times number. And I I think they will lose market share. So again, I think this is as good as it gets in terms of the competitive landscape being behind them. And I think they're closing fast. Dan, just quickly, in terms of the relative outperformance, and you've pointed this out when it comes to Tesla in the ARC Innovation Fund relative to the rest of the components there, which are supposedly growthier, cutting edge kinds of companies. And Tesla's really held up. Do you buy the thesis that Guy's putting forth that part of this might be that Elon Musk is 
got a muzzle on, so to speak. I mean, he, he's actually acting like a grown-up. I mean, aside from the Shiba Inu tweets, et cetera, um, you know, he's, he's relatively stayed these days. Well, he, it's not only that he stayed. He, he's actually growing into that genius that everyone says that he is. I saw him at Code last week with Kara Swisher. I mean, he's very deliberate about a lot of things that he says. And I think Gene also mentioned the fact that He's focused on Mars. And when you talk to him, and it's not just a Tesla conversation, you see, I mean, they're sending satellites and they're returning the rocket ships and they're sending man, you know, I mean, they're doing big, big things. So I think he kind of gets really where he needs to be for a guy who's going to have a trillion dollar market cap company in Tesla in the not so distant future, probably. And then you tell me, what's the TAM on a SpaceX? I mean, it's is it trillions? You know what I mean? So I don't know. Maybe he won. Elon, you know, for for, you know, like ruler of the uh, of the galaxy. I mean, at this point, Ming the Merciless, you know, I mean, it's him. He won. We're done. So salty in that denim shirt. Coming up, the battle of the banks. Yesterday, we flagged a big bet against the financials. Today, we've got the other side of the trade. We'll bring it to you when Fast Money returns. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the XLF Financials ETF hitting a new 52-week high today. Last night, Tony Zhang told us about a $6 million options bet against the ETF. And now Mike Coe joins us to break down a big day of betting on the exact opposite direction. So, Mike, take it away. Yeah, a little bit of a switch here in the sentiment. So XLF traded about 1.8 times its average daily call volume. The most active options were the October 39 strike calls. About 38,000 of those traded for 50 cents. Those are the calls that expire a week from tomorrow. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the rally we saw today could continue, risking a little under 1.3% of the current stock price, that it could rise about 2% by the end of next week. Karen, you're getting a little nervous going into earnings, right? Yes, I am. I feel like this is a terrible setup for banks. I mean, if we look, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, J.P. Morgan was $152. So earlier today, I traded like $172, $20 on J.P. Morgan. That's a huge run. That's an all-time high. Bank America, also a uh, post-great financial crisis high. So I just think that the setup isn't great. I like the banks. It's not like they're super frothy. But, uh, you know, we saw J.P. Morgan had good numbers in January and the stock traded off, good numbers in April, the stock traded off, good numbers in July, the stock traded off. So it's just I think the bar is getting high. It's not it's it's getting high enough that, um, you know, I think people might be disappointed. I'm staying long. I'm not going to trade around it. And, you know, I have taxes to worry about and I don't know when I would get back in. But I'm not that excited. I'm not that hopeful that we'll see a huge run up in the banks next week. Next yeah. Thursday, I think J.P. Morgan starts yeah, the, the action going into print makes all the difference, Guy, as we've seen time and time again. And I know you're a football fan, and playbooks are obviously a big thing. And the playbook for banks have been the last few years that they rally into earnings. To Karen's point, she doesn't like the setup, for probably for good reason, because we've seen a number of these banks sell off on the back of earnings. Goldman Sachs is classic. But J.P. Morgan, given the run, would make sense. So... She's probably spot on. I, I think, though, you're going to get an opportunity. She probably would agree in the form of some of these banks that still traded a pretty significant discount to tangible books, City being one of them. All right. Mike Coe, thank you. We'll see you tomorrow for the full show. Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades.
for the final trailer. Let's go around the horn. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Mel, I know I look good in this shirt, but Levi's will get you done here. 15% from its all-time highs. Beaten raised yesterday. I think it goes back there. I don't know if Dan has a mirror. Uh, Tim, what do you say? <laughs> shirt that only a mother could love, I think. Um, no, looks great on you, though. Uh, Google uh, is, is up 2% against the S&P. It's going higher in the next couple of days as well. Karen. Thankfully, we can't see with these cameras, so I'm sure you look fabulous, though, Dan. I have no doubt. Anyway, in a frothy market or not, I just want value. CVS can chug along either way. Guy. The matching chaps must be very attractive. Uh, NASDAQ, Mel. (laughs) Mad Money starts right now.